The following message is by Dr. Derek Brown, pastor and elder at Creekside Bible Church, located in Cupertino, California. So let's turn to Hebrews chapter 2, verses 5 through 13. But let's get our contextual bearings before we just jump into that passage, because we want to be reminded of exactly what's happening in the book of Hebrews. The book of Hebrews is an exceedingly rewarding book, but it's the kind of rewarding book uh, like doing an ultra marathon where you feel a great amount of reward and satisfaction after a lot of hard work. That's the book of Hebrews. It requires a good amount of effort for you to get, glean all the riches that are there in order to reap all the harvest that is there. So I just encourage you to really stick with me today as we dig into this text. But let's go back and remind ourselves of what the author is doing in the book of Hebrews. The number one thing that he is doing in chapter 1 and chapter 2 is to show us that Jesus Christ is superior over the angels. That's if Just write that over chapters 1 and chapters 2. That's the big picture. Jesus Christ is better than the angels. And in chapter 1, the category for proving that is the deity of Jesus. Jesus Christ is God of very God. The angels, well, they're just... Ministers, they're flames of fire. But they are not God of very God like the Son of God is. So he is making this argument for the superiority of Jesus over the angels in the first chapter with reference to Jesus' deity. And this is important because apparently there is some kind of teaching in this church. Where it came from, we're not sure. Why it originated, we're not entirely sure, though it did have some relation to Judaism because the temptation was to show that the Old Covenant was superior to the New Covenant and that these these Christians who are Jewish Christians needed to be brought back to the Old Covenant. And one of the ways of trying to tempt them to do that was to show them that the Old Covenant was delivered by angels. And we do have some evidence for that in Galatians and in here and in Uh, the Pentateuch, but the teaching was that that was floating around and seeming to encroach on this church was that the angels were superior to Jesus. Jesus, he's an intermediary of some sort, but the angels, if you really want to get spiritual, you need to connect with the angels because they are superior to Jesus. Well, the author of Hebrews has no patience for that kind of thing, and so he takes that teaching to task in chapters 1 and chapters 2 and labors over many passages out of the Old Testament to show that Jesus is superior to the angels. Number one, because he is God, a very God. He is the creator. Angels worship Jesus, not the other way around. Jesus is the creator of angels. And so those angels, they're mere ministers and flames of fire. And so then you come to chapter 2, verses 1 through 4, and the implication or the application, you might say, of that stunning truth that Jesus is God, a very God, this man who came to earth and purchased our redemption. He was God. He was equal to the Father in every way. Whatever makes the Father God, Jesus possesses in full measure. Because of that, because of that wonderful salvation that Jesus brings, therefore do not drift away from Jesus, thinking somehow that the old covenant is better. Because this was the reasoning. If the angels delivered the old covenant to Moses, they had some part in that. And if Jesus is inferior to the angels, 
conclusion should be that the Old Covenant is superior to the New Covenant. Therefore, Jewish Christians, you need to come back to the Old Covenant. The author of Hebrews says that would be a deadly mistake. That would, to, that would actually lead to your eternal condemnation because you would be turning your back on the only means of the forgiveness of your sins, namely Jesus Christ. So he interjects this application in chapter 2 verses 1 through 4 to say, okay, Jesus is God, a very God. He is superior to the angels. Therefore, do not drift away from Jesus. Hold fast to him. But then in verse 5 in our passage for today, he actually is going to return again to this issue of Jesus being better than the angels. He's really got to hammer this home. And this has practical import for us because what I hope to do in the preaching of Hebrews and preaching through Hebrews is to increase our worship of Jesus Christ. You might remember a couple, or I should say several weeks ago, it's the last time I preached in Hebrews, that... One of the goals of the preaching is to to increase our clarity of the deity of Jesus so that you can worship Jesus wholeheartedly without a hint of hesitation. There shouldn't be any hesitation in ascribing to Jesus all the worth and glory that God deserves because he is God. All the worth and glory that the Father deserves, so does the Son. And so I want our worship of Jesus to be solidified, stable, and an increase by our study of Hebrews. But what's interesting, as you turn to chapter 2, verse 5, is now the author of Hebrews is going to argue for the superiority of Jesus over the angels based on his humanity. It's just incredible. From both sides, he is going to hammer this truth home that Jesus is infinitely better than the angels. And so that's what we turn to in chapter 2, verse 5. Look at, he is going to stick with this topic. Oh, I wanted to say one more thing about how practical this is. It's practical for our own worship of Jesus, of course. But you have religious groups today trying to uh, convince others that Jesus is a mere angel. One group in particular, the Jehovah's Witnesses, claim that Jesus is Michael the Archangel. And so you have two huge weapons in chapters 1 and chapter 2 to dismantle that kind of teaching here in the book of Hebrews, not to mention multiple other texts in the New Testament, so that you can show your friends who are in other religious groups that Jesus, oh, he's no angel. He created the angels. He is the infinite, almighty almighty creator, which is what makes his humanity so incredible, that he would actually take on a human nature to become our savior. But we're we're getting a little ahead of ourselves. Let's go back here to chapter 2, verse 5. He is going to go back to this topic of Jesus being superior to the angels. And if you'll look at your bulletins today, the today's title, the message of today's sermon is Jesus Christ, perfect man, perfect savior. The author of Hebrews is going to prove or display this theme through the argument that Jesus is superior to the angels. And so you'll see that reflected in the outline. We're going to follow his argument that Jesus is superior to the angels. And the conclusion of that argument is that Jesus Christ is the perfect man and therefore the perfect savior. 
But in verses 5 and following, the author of Hebrews will argue on the basis now of Jesus' humanity that he is superior to the angels. He is superior to all angelic beings, not only because he is God, but also because he is a man. And I even alluded to this a few weeks ago, saying that you're, the, the angels are mere ministers and winds and flames of fire set about to do the bidding of God for the, those who will inherit salvation, namely those human beings who have trusted in Jesus Christ. They are your servants. You will someday judge angels. So being a human actually makes you superior to the angels, as we'll see. But that's the point. Far less than saying that Jesus is inferior to the angels because he's a man, he is superior all right, so let us look at this text here. He says, For it was not to angels that Jesus or that God subjected the world to come, of which we are speaking. So the point here is that as you are considering this Jesus, remember the argument is that he's superior to the angels. Just keep in mind, it wasn't to angels that God subjected the world to come. What is this world to come? Where in the author of Hebrews' mind, in, you turn over to chapters 11 and 12, this, this world to come is our future existence in the new heavens and the new earth, the new and future coming kingdom that we are all anticipating, that city, that heavenly city that we are expecting. That heavenly city was not subjected to the rule and the authority of the angels. Who is it subjected to? It was subjected ultimately to human beings, not to angels. And so that's his point. And so then he's going to go and prove this in the Old Testament, as he is wont to do. He is always going back to the Old Testament. And this is vital for the author of Hebrews because the people to whom he is writing are those who are being tempted by Jews to go back to the Old Covenant. And so he has to show from the Old Covenant itself that, in fact, the New Covenant is superior, that the Old Covenant is always anticipating a New Covenant. So he needs to prove his point from the Old Testament. So he's going to turn now to prove this point that he just made about the world to come being subjected to humans from Psalm 8, which is what Austin read, thankfully. Thank you for reading that beautiful Psalm, Psalm 8. Let's go back to it again. Psalm 8. Just a remarkable Psalm. It is short, it's sweet. You could probably memorize it this afternoon if you gave it a little time. But he's quoting from this passage, and he says, it has been testified somewhere. It's not because he didn't know who said it or who wrote it or where it was located in the Old Testament. But for the author of Hebrews, ultimately, the author of Scripture is God. So the human author was not insignificant, but not as significant as the reality that God is the one who authored the Old Testament Scripture. So he is not emphasizing the human author. It has been said somewhere. It says somewhere, he knows where it's, it's located. He knows his Old Testament, it's clear. But he is de-emphasizing the human author. But this is an author of David. It's clear you, in your, uh, the superscript of the, or the title of the psalm, you'll see here that it is a psalm of David. And he begins this way. He says, O Lord, our Lord, how majestic is your name in all the earth. You have set your glory above the heavens, 
Out of the mouths of babies and infants, you have established strength because of your foes to still the enemy and the avenger. And Jesus actually said, this passage applies to me. So actually, he, Jesus in the Gospels applies this passage to me, which uh, implies that Jesus is Yahweh, but that's for another time. Verse 3, when I look at your fingers, the work of your fingers... I'm sorry, when I look at your heavens, the work of your fingers, the moon and the stars which you have set in place. Now, just think of that. That is stunning language. We don't want to domesticate that language. We don't want to get bored with that language. And just for fun this week, after I read this and did a little study, I wanted to get, I, got, I, wanted, I wanted this to hit me. So I got on YouTube and I started to look for those videos that show, that show the earth and they span out, into the, our, um, span out from our solar system and then our galaxy and they keep spanning back and spanning back and spanning back and spanning back and bringing all the way out to our, all the, the, the pictures that we know of in terms of the known uh, uh, universe that the Hubble telescope has taken and it backs out and backs out and backs out until you, there, you can't even tell where earth is because it's so far in the background, now that you've panned all the way out to go as far as you can out to these galaxies way beyond our solar system and our own Milky Way galaxy. And so I just got online to kind of watch this for five minutes and just be like, oh my goodness, you've got to be kidding me, right? And it's just, you just overwhelmed. And, and David didn't have access to that. He just looked up at the sky and he could tell this is a massive universe. I don't know how big, but it's massive. And he's saying, when I look at your heavens, the work of your fingers the moon and stars that you've set in place, he is stunned. And so I thought, maybe I'll do some math and I'll try to get, help us grasp how big our universe is and how small the earth is and how small we are compared to the universe. Well, that ain't going to happen because I didn't understand half the math they were throwing at me. So I said, enough of that. But then I, I found, I found a, a kind of a pithy little saying and I thought, okay, maybe this will give us some idea. Even though... I'm not even sure how accurate this is. So you scientists, you go out there and you confirm this. But I did find, in all my uh, research, I found this one statement. It said, if you took the known universe and basically our world, the, 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 the earth was, now you shrunk it down. The, the earth now represents the known universe. How big would humans be? And one person said it would be the nucleus of an atom. And I said, that's pretty small. And it, it sounds pretty extraordinary. And so you can check that out to see if that's true. But the point was, is that it is absolutely stunning in David's mind when you consider the expanse and the, just the sheer massive size of the universe that God would then, verse four, what is man that you are mindful of him and the son of man that you care for him? That's his first thought. He considers the massive size of the universe, the expanse of it, and then his thought is, how is it that you care for dust? But he, he does, and not only that, not only does he care for them, but he, is not, he has endowed mankind with the greatest honor that any creature can enjoy. He has crowned him with glory and honor. Verse 7, you have made him a little lower than, the ESV says, the heavenly beings. Now, in my research this week, I also found, because as I'm, as I'm looking for these kinds of, this kind of data to give me just some sort of sense of how big the universe is compared to here, us here in this 
earth, you also get kind of philosophical musings from people, right? And often the philosophical musings are utterly depressing because what people conclude, if they don't know God and they don't know his word, what people conclude when they see the massive size of the universe and how small we are in comparison, they say, I'm insignificant, full stop. And that's as far as they go. That's, that's as far as you can go without a biblical worldview. I'm insignificant. Therefore, I don't matter. Therefore, life is meaningless in such a vast universe. Those are the philosophical musings that flow out of a study of the massive nature of this universe when you don't have God at the center. Because what David does is he looks to the heavens and then he turns to man and says, how could it be that you care for us? But you do. And not only that, that you have crowned man with glory and honor. You have set him in charge of your earthly creation. I, I, I can't believe it. You made him a little lower than the angels. You have crowned him with glory and honor, putting everything in subjection to his feet. So the, the believer, when you look out in the uh, vastness of the universe, you don't conclude, I am insignificant, therefore life is meaningless and I don't matter. You are stunned at what God has done for you. You are stunned at the fact that he has crowned mankind with glory and honor, that he has made us in his image, that he has set us over the works of his hands. Life is not meaningless. Life has great meaning. In fact, you learn in Scripture, in Psalm 19 specifically, that one of the important purposes of our life is to look up at those heavens and to worship and to be utterly astounded at the power and glory and majesty of God. You were made to enjoy an infinite God. Well, before we move on, I want to clear up a couple of difficulties. And the reason I want to do this, you might feel for the next couple of minutes that this is a bit technical. But the reason I want us to do this is because I do catch the sense that sometimes when pastors I've listened to over the years, when they skip over tough stuff, that can sometimes imply that the Bible can't take our scrutiny. And you begin to maybe lose confidence that the scriptures are true or that the Old Testament or that the New Testament authors are treating the Old Testament in the right way. So I do want to spend a little time clearing up a couple of difficulties. One of them is if you've already if you have the New American Standard for an example, if you were reading and following with me in Psalm 8, you might have noticed in the New American Standard that it says, you have made him a little lower than God. You might be thinking, that's interesting because that's not how the author of Hebrews quotes it. So what's going on there? The ESV if you have the ESV, if you're reading the ESV, at least in the latest edition, it says, you have made him a little lower than the heavenly beings. And then it gives you a footnote and it says, or God. Okay? And you turn over to Hebrews and the author of Hebrews says, you have made him a little lower than the angels. And you might be thinking, wait a second, is the author of Hebrews playing fast and loose with the Old Testament just to prove a theological point? I mean, that doesn't sound legit. And I would say, it's not. There are two ways that this problem has typically been solved by 
Bible interpreters. The first one is the author of Hebrews is clearly an heir. Okay? You just got to reckon with that. The Bible's not inerrant. There's heirs. Here's one of them. He just got it wrong. Let's move on with our day and go to lunch. Okay? That's one way to deal with it. It's an easy way. It doesn't require any work. But that's one way. The other way may sound better, but it's, it's no better. It's the, the New Testament authors, they're inspired by God. They can do whatever they want. Okay? It's authoritative. Don't try to figure out what they're doing. They can do it. Just accept it. I don't think that's adequate either. Rather, I believe that the author of Hebrews is in, with, within his interpretational rights to make the move that he does here. He's not playing fast and loose with the Old Testament. So let me propose a couple of solutions to this potential problem here. Okay? One potential solution here is that this word Elohim can in fact elsewhere mean heavenly beings. Uh, for example, Psalm 82 verse 1, the word is translated, this word Elohim here, which is translated most of the time with reference to the one true God. It can sometimes have reference to gods, like the, the idols of the nations, the false gods of the nations, but occasionally it can refer to heavenly beings, like 80, Psalm 82 1, for example. In the ESV, at least, it seems to have reference to heavenly beings, likely angels. So one could argue that the author of Hebrews here is within his interpretational rights to translate it this way. The author of Hebrews is using the Septuagint, which is a Greek translation of the original Hebrew. And this, this version of the, the Old Testament was completed sometime in 250 to 80 BC, right around there. And it's a translation of the original Hebrew. And it's the translation of the Old Testament that clearly the author of Hebrews is using. And he's using it all throughout his letter. That doesn't help us any because if the Septuagint got it wrong, then the author of Hebrews is getting it wrong by using the Septuagint. But it's possible that this word Elohim could be legitimately translated heavenly beings. And so you could translate it there in verse 5 of Psalm 8 as heavenly beings. Another possible solution is in, in finding warrant. Again, we want to find warrant. What warrant does the author of Hebrews have for translating it this way? Another way that we can find warrant is that in the Old Testament, angels are the being that is right next to God. They're in proximity to God. They're always near God. They're in his heavenly courts. They are doing his bidding. They're always right next to God, to the Lord. In fact, they're even called sons of God in Job 38.7. In Psalm 89, 6-7, it says this, quote, For who in the skies can be compared to Yahweh? Who among the heavenly beings is like Yahweh, a God greatly to be feared in the counsel of the holy ones and awesome above all who are around him? So you can see this comparison between the heavenly beings and Yahweh himself. Here in this text, Psalm 89, heavenly beings and holy ones likely have reference to angels. And the psalmist is comparing God to the angels because the angels do possess a kind of exalted status. So to say that God is higher than the angels is to say that God is above all. To say that God is greater than the angels is to say that God is greater than all beings. Therefore, to say that man is a little lower than God is equivalent to say that he is a little lower than the angels. 
And so the reason I bring up these two possible solutions is because I believe the author of Hebrews is fully within his interpretational rights to use the Septuagint and to see it as an accurate representation of that text in Psalm 8. He is not just playing fast and loose with the Old Testament. He is using it correctly. He's not just grabbing it to make a point. He is using it in the right way. And we need to see this. We need to have confidence that the Old Testament is being used accurately and well by the New Testament authors. And you can actually see what they're doing. All right. Either way, you don't need to ascribe error to the author of Hebrews for using the Septuagint translation of Psalm 8 in his argument for the superior, superiority of Jesus over the angels. His point is clear. Human beings have been made a little lower than the angels, but unlike the angels, human beings are rulers over all that God has made, which is what we'll get to in a moment. Second problem. The ESV translates verse 7 in Psalm 8. I'm sorry, verse 7 in uh, Hebrews chapter 2. Hebrews chapter 2, verse 7, ESV translated, You have made him for a little while lower than the angels. It could legitimately translated, You have made him a little lower than the angels. The question is, is whether or not that word little carries the connotations of time or else or something else. Okay, Does it carry the connotations of time or does it carry the connotations of status? And the way this word is used in the, in the rest of the New Testament, I tend to take it to be a little while lower so that it does have reference to time. The author of Hebrews is following the Septuagint translation at this point because as you look um, in the, I believe it's in the New American Standard, I can't remember exactly, but it's possible to translate verse 5 in Psalm 8 as, yet you have made him a little lower than the heavenly beings, either a little lower or a little while lower. It's, 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 it's challenging to know exactly in Psalm 8, but I believe that using the Septuagint, the author of Hebrews is correctly interpreting the sense of Psalm 8. In other words, what he's trying to say is that it's only for a specified period of time that the angels are superior in any way to humans, that we have only been made lower than the angels for a short time, that our destiny is to someday reign over even the angels. And so again, the author of Hebrews is within his interpretational rights to say, verse 7, you have made him for a little while lower than the angels, as he is reading Psalm 8 through the Septuagint. But even if you do take it the other way, you have made him a little lower than the angels, and you don't see this as a reference to time, it's already been made clear in the passage in verse 5 that the subjection of the world to humans is God's ultimate goal, and that they, their inferiority to the angels, if they have any, is only for a temporary time. His, his point is clear from the beginning of verse 5 all the way down to verse 8, regardless of what way you take it. God did not entrust the rulership of the world to come to angels. He entrusted it to mankind. Therefore, our status as lower than the angels must, for that reason, be temporary. 
Because as the author observes in verse 8, let's look now in verse 8, the latter part of it. He says, putting everything in subjection under his feet. He, the author observes something. He says, now in putting everything in subjection to him, he left nothing outside of his control. So he's looking at Psalm 8 and he's recognizing that when God established humankind's rule over what he has made, he left no, God left nothing outside of mankind's rule. He has always intended for it to be absolute. That is the scope of human authority over what God has made. It's an absolute authority. He's going to rule over everything. And the author of Hebrews even affirms that. He's affirming that from Psalm 8. Now in putting everything in subjection to him, he left nothing outside his control. That is how he is interpreting Psalm 8. And this interpretation is in keeping with what Scripture teaches. Psalm 8 is really simply a reflection on Genesis chapter 1, verses 26 through 31. That's all it is. It's reflecting back in light of God's incredible majesty in the heavens, reflecting back and considering what God has done in creating man and designating him as the ruler of his creation. And just a reminder, Genesis 1.26 says this, God said, let us make man in our image after our likeness and let him have dominion over the fish of the sea and over the birds of the heavens and over the livestock and over all the earth and over every creeping thing that creeps on the earth. And so God made man in his image and entrusted to him this vice-regency, we might say, this kingship over all of his earthly creation. And God blessed them, and he said to them, Be fruitful and multiply, and fill the earth and subdue it, and have dominion over the fish of the sea, and over the birds of the heavens, and over every living thing that exists in this present world, over every living thing that moves on the earth. That's what God established, and that's the way it was supposed to be. So Psalm 8, the David is reflecting upon this original design in Genesis 1, and the author of Hebrews is picking up on Psalm 8 and recognizing that this authority was absolute. We are to have rulership over everything that God had created. But there is a huge, huge problem, isn't there? It's an empirical problem. We can test it. We can test this issue. We, we know that there's something wrong. And the author of Hebrews even makes this observation. What does he say? At present, we do not yet see everything in subjection to him. <laughs> right? I mean, post chapter 3 in Genesis, post fall, after sin entered the world, there was a huge disruption between mankind's rule, humankind's rule over the creation and the creation itself. The creation no longer yields to our rule the way it originally did or the way that it was supposed to. I mean, you just you know this just when you go to work and you just think in your back of your mind as you go about work and there's frustrating things that happen at work. You're just like thorns and thistles, right? Because you know that the, the, the world is not submitting to you the way it should, the way it was supposed to originally. It now bears thorns and thistles. The work that you put in doesn't always come back equally. You put in work, you might put in a certain amount of work, and you might get back twofold, you might get nothing back, right? There's futility and frustration now introduced into our existence. 
There are storms that wipe out cities and towns. There are things in this earth. There are, there are animals who, are, who will violently attack and destroy human beings. Why? Because this earth is presently not into, in our subjection as it was intended to be. And, and the author of Hebrews recognizes that. He understands that. He sees that. And he poses the problem. But he also recognizes with this little very significant word, yet, in verse 8. Yet. We do not yet see everything in subjection to him. He sees that Genesis 1 and Psalm 8 cry out for fulfillment. This is the way God designed it. God made us kings. He made us rulers over this creation. And yet it is not under our rulership. But that lack of of authority over the creation is only temporary, but we do not yet see everything in subjection to him. Enter Jesus. Jesus is going to take care of all of this trouble. Look at what the author says. He says, but we do see him who for a little while was made lower than the angels, namely Jesus, crowned with glory and honor because of the suffering of death, so that by the grace of God, he might taste death for everyone. One of the reasons why people were tempted to think of Jesus being inferior to the angels is because he became a man. What we already saw is that being a man actually makes you superior to the angels. But nevertheless, this is something that the author of Hebrews had to to reckon with and had to help people reckon with it. Yes, in fact, he did become Lord of the angels for a time in the incarnation. Everything that God is, the Son is, but everything that man is, the Son also became. He took on a genuine human nature. The divine nature now and the human nature are together in perfect union. There's no blending of the two natures, no loss of either nature, no confusion of the natures. The God-man, the Lord Jesus Christ, is truly God and truly man. It is for this reason that Jesus became lower than the angels, for the sake of the incarnation. He did not become lower than the angels in his divine being or essence. He always remained God of very God. That is orthodox Christianity. If you deny that, then you've denied the faith. He was always the son. He, the divine nature was always intact. Wonder of wonders, even when he was a baby in the manger. The, divine, the infinite divine essence was still intact. That's just mind-blowing. But by becoming a man... And becoming vulnerable to death, he was made lower than the angels during the time of his earthly life. See, angels don't die. And so in that way, angels have an advantage over humans. But in another, even more significant way, it's a disadvantage. Because because they cannot die, they cannot atone for the sins of mankind. Jesus can, because he became a man. The Lord Jesus Christ is going to achieve redemption and glory and honor by giving himself over to death and then defeating it. No angel can do that. No angel can do that. No angel can take on perfect human nature as the divine son and therefore bear the punishment that is deserved human creatures. 
Why did Jesus assume this lower status and vulnerability to death? Why did he do it? He did it. Verse 14 makes it explicit. He did it so that he could taste death for all of God's people. That's why he did it. He did it because he loves his people. He did it to rescue you from the clutches of death and from the clutches of sin and from the clutches of hell. That's why he did it. He had to be made like us. Verse 14, quote, Since therefore the children share in flesh and blood, he himself likewise partook of the same things, that through death he might destroy the one who has the power of death, that is the devil. In order to atone for man's sin, Jesus Christ had to become a man. So Jesus Christ is better than the angels because he is a man. That's verses 5 through 8. But as something we just we're starting to allude to now, Jesus is better than the angels because he tasted death for God's people. Jesus is better than the angels because he t- tasted death for God's people. This word taste might sound to us that it's just kind of a, a little sipping. This word taste doesn't mean that. It means full experience. Jesus took on the full experience of death. The reason why you don't have to fear death is because it's already been dealt with in Jesus. He died your death for you. Fully, completely, not in, not halfway, not three quarters of the way. He didn't get, become kind of, uh, uh, he, didn't, he, he wasn't put up on the cross and he got kind of weak and then was taken down and then showed himself and uh, resuscitated himself in kind of a, a, a halfway and showed himself to his disciples. No, not at all. He died completely and then was raised from the dead. So you, you don't have to fear death because he is the one who did death for you. Death is now not the end, is now the entrance into eternal life. It is now a mere passageway into pleasures forevermore. And Jesus did that, and the only way he could do that is by becoming human. What is really interesting, though, is is that the author of Hebrews in verse 9, he says that Jesus' crowning of glory and honor came after his death. After his work of redemption, that's when his crown of glory and honor came. Psalm 8 says that human beings were crowned with glory and honor due to their creation. At the creation is when we are crowned with glory and honor. Jesus was crowned with glory and honor after his work of redemption. What's the significance of this? Well, let's think about it for a second. By placing Jesus' crowning after the atonement, the author of Hebrews is saying that Jesus is the fulfillment of the expectation in Psalm 8. That's his argument. That, that crowning of glory and honor which Jesus achieved after the atonement is showing that the author of Hebrews sees this Jesus, what he's doing as a fulfillment of that expectation in Psalm 8. God created mankind. He crowned him with glory and honor. He set him over the work of his hands and put everything in subjection to him. But that rulership, as we know, has been disrupted. It's been hindered, not completely overthrown, but it's been disrupted and hindered ever since the fall. Much of that original glory was lost, wasn't it? It's not completely lost, but a lot of it was. Then Jesus Christ became a man and came to life and gave his, came to earth and gave his life to atone for God's people's sin. He came to take away sin, which is precisely why our rulership has been disrupted. The reason why we don't rule this world the way we are intended to is because of sin. 
And Jesus was for that reason crowned with glory and honor for his atoning work. The implication that will be brought out here later in Hebrews, and that's brought out in even fuller ways in other passages in the New Testament, is that Jesus Christ is the perfect image of God and the perfect image of man. Jesus Christ is the king of all creation. Here it is. He restores man's glory and honor. It's a redemption project. It's a restoration project. Jesus is restoring that glory and honor to mankind. He is the true image of God. He is the true image of man. He is everything that man was supposed to be. He obeyed the Father perfectly. He did everything right, never sinned. He died for our sins and now has restored our status as God's vice rulers. He's restored our glory and honor. He is the one true king, the king of kings and the Lord of lords. It's for this reason and this reason alone that Paul can say the crazy thing that he does in 1 Corinthians 6.3 that someday we will rule over the angels. It's because of Jesus. We rule over the angels because we're united to Jesus and Jesus rules over the angels, and so we do with him. We rule with Christ. That's Revelation 2, 26 through 27. Do you anticipate the time when you will rule with Christ? It's what you were made to do. You're created, I was created in Genesis 1 to rule over God's creation with a benevolent, godly, wise authority. Well, we messed that all up. And Jesus is restoring it. And now united to Jesus, we are anticipating a future of perfect, benevolent, heavenly rule with our Lord and Savior. It's going to be glorious. We will be worshiping. We will be working. We will be ruling. That's our future. Sinless, without envy, without strife, without the fear of encroaching sin, without the fear of evil, without the fear of some nation taking us out, at rest, ruling over God's creation. Jesus restored all that, and he did it because he tasted death for God's people. The death of death and the death of Christ, right? Well, Jesus is better than the angels because he's man. He's better than the angels because he tasted death for God's people. And he's better than the angels because he is the perfect Savior. He's the perfect Savior. Let's look here at the next part. Verse 10, it was fitting that he, for whom and by whom all things exist in bringing many sons to glory, that he should make the founder of their salvation perfect through suffering. Now let's hold on here a second. Maybe that passage trips you up a little bit. What does it mean he was made perfect through suffering? Well, first let's notice that it was fitting. Whatever God did in his redemption project, it was fitting for him to take his son and make him take on a human nature. This was fitting. It was fitting that the Father, in bringing many sons to glory, that's us, should make the founder of their salvation perfect through suffering. Now, to say such a thing in this time, in this Greco-Roman environment, would have been totally scandalous. And it's even kind of scandalous today to, to, to give the idea that God would suffer on the cross and die. I mean, it just sounds pathetic to most. In fact, it sounds pathetic to people in Paul's day, and it sounds pathetic to people even today. 
people reject Christ because he is weak. But they, they fail to recognize that that weakness is precisely the power of God because he dies in our place so that our sins can be forgiven. It was fitting, it was right, it was appropriate that God would make our Savior perfect through suffering. What does perfect mean? It doesn't mean that Jesus went from moral inferiority to superiority. It doesn't mean that his deity got better. It means that he was made fitting for our redemption. He did and became everything that we needed for a Savior. We needed someone exactly like us in our humanity to take our punishment for our sin. Jesus did that. We needed someone who could bear the wrath and judgment and justice of God perfectly. Jesus did that. So this idea of fittingness or perfect, uh, perfection has the idea of Jesus' person perfectly corresponding to the requirement of God's holiness and His great love. Jesus is our perfect Savior. Death is the penalty for sin. Death is inescapable. The mortality rate is 100%. That's what we were telling people in our evangelism yesterday. You can't escape it. Jeff Bezos, you can't escape it. He's trying to. He's trying to figure out a way to escape death. You can't do it. Maybe put it off for a little while, but you can't escape it. It's a penalty for human sin. And the Son of God takes on a human nature and dies in our place. And we'll also see next week that his taking on a human nature enables him to now also come alongside us and sympathize with us in our suffering, in our temptation, because he suffered and was tempted in his earthly ministry as well. So he doesn't just taste death for us. He, he takes on a human nature so that he can sympathize and be our sympathetic high priest. But he does take on a genuine human nature to die in our Place And this was fitting. Had, had anything else happened, we, we wouldn't have a fitting, perfect Savior. This is the way it had to be. We needed a Savior who would die in our place. Death needs to be taken care of. That's one of the questions we ask people is, is what do you do with death? What do you do with the forgiveness of sins? How do you get your sins forgiven? When we are going door to door, that's one of the questions that we often ask, and Jesus provides that forgiveness because he dies our death in our place. Well, Jesus is better than the angels. This is our last point, and this is where we will end. Jesus is better than the angels because he has true brotherhood with his people. He has true brotherhood with his people. This is a beautiful thing. Verse 11, it says, For he who sanctifies, that's Jesus, and those who are sanctified, that's us, all have one source, or all come from one. And the idea here is likely that he's saying that it's the Father who designed all this redemptive plan. It's Jesus who is our perfect Savior. And Jesus is the one who sanctifies us, who saves us and sanctifies us and makes us like Him. And it's all coming from the heavenly, our Heavenly Father. It's all coming from one place. We all have one Father together. And it's for this reason that Jesus is not ashamed to call us brothers. We are God's children by adoption because we've been saved by God's one true son, who is his one true son, not by adoption, but by his essence. He is God of very God. We are his brothers, and therefore he's not ashamed to call us brothers. This is a beautiful, beautiful thing. 
Jesus Christ, the perfect righteous one, the creator, the holy one of all creation, takes us into his arms and says, I'm not ashamed to call you my brother and my sister. You are mine. I have bought you. I have purchased you. I've taken on your nature. I share with you flesh and blood. You are my brother. I mean, that is just an incredibly wonderful thought, a beautiful thought. Us hard-hearted sinners that the Son of God would give himself for us and then say, I'm not ashamed to call you brothers. I've covered you with my righteousness. You just think about that this week. How many times did you blow it? How many times did I blow it? Ask my wife. Don't ask my wife. How many times did I blow it? Jesus is not ashamed to call me brother. He's not ashamed to call you brother. He's not ashamed to call you sister. Why? Because he has died for you. Because you belong to the Father. And again, this solidarity is proven from the Old Testament. Just briefly, I want us to go through these texts. Just each one very quickly here. He's going to prove it from the Old Testament. He has to, right? He's talking to those who would have been familiar with the Old Testament, many of whom were Jews. So he goes first to Psalm 22. Psalm 22, you know that psalm. It's a psalm that Jesus quotes when he's on, his, on the cross. My God, my God, why have you forsaken me? He's quoting Psalm 22. He's on the cross. Psalm 22, it's a psalm of David. This comes from Psalm 22. I will tell of your name to my brothers. In the midst of the congregation, I will sing your praise. In Psalm 22, you have the description of the Messiah being accosted and treated horribly by people, by his enemies. And that is the, the, a good portion of the, the psalm. It, it, it begins that way, and it takes you through these just heart-wrenching cries. He says, verse 5, to you, I'm sorry, uh, verse 2, Oh my God, I cry by day, but you do not answer, and by night, and, but I find no rest. Jesus here uh, being prophesied, the, 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 the life and the death of Jesus being prophesied near here now through David's words. He's crying out to God, seemingly not to answer because Jesus is continuing to hang on the cross. And some are even saying, if, if you really know God, Jesus, then tell him to get you off the cross. That's, what, that's the kind of mockery he was receiving. Verse 7, all who see me mock me. With, they make mouths at me. They wag their heads. And so this is just a horrendous situation of the suffering of this, this Messiah. Verse 16, verses eight, 16 through 18, describe the crucifixion remarkably. Verse 16, for dogs encompass me. A company of evildoers encircles me. They have pierced my hands and feet. I can count all my bones. They stare and gloat over me. They divide my garments among them. And for my clothing they cast lots. That was fulfilled in Jesus' crucifixion. But then guess what? The resurrection is actually prophesied in Psalm 22. He's crying out, But you, O Lord, do not be far off. To you, O you, my help, come quickly to my aid. Deliver my soul from the sword, my precious life from the power of the dog. Save me from the mouth of the lion. You have rescued me from the horns of the wild oxen. So in verse 21, he cries out to be saved. The latter part of verse 21, there's a turn. You have rescued me from the horns of the wild oxen. And then... Verse 22, in I will tell your name to my brothers. Wait a second. How are you going to do that? How are you going to do that if, if you're dead? 
Well, it's because he's resurrected. I will tell of your name to my brothers. And so the psalmist is actually anticipating a time when this Messiah will suffer, but also when the Messiah will not ultimately succumb to death. Yes, Jesus did die, did die, but he did not succumb to ultimate death. He was raised again, which is why he can say, I will tell of your name to my brothers in the midst of the congregation. I will praise you. Jesus is able to do that because he rose from the dead. We have solidarity with Jesus. We have, as Ephesians says, we've been raised up with him. Right? There's coming a day when he will announce us to the Father, present us to the Father. Not ashamed, but happy to do it. And then he turns over to the author of Hebrews, and we'll close with this. The author of Hebrews turns over to another book in the Old Testament, Isaiah. Probably Isaiah verses 17 and 18. Well, we know it's 18, 17 as well. Probably the verse right before that where it says in the, um, Isaiah 17, I'll put my hope in him, I'll put my trust in him. So it's likely that he's quoting 17 and 18. And again, I'll put my hope in him or I'll put my trust in him. And again, behold, I am the children that God has given me. And if you were to turn back to Isaiah, you might be wondering, whoa, that's random. Like, why Isaiah and how does this fit? And again, I don't want to skip over this and say, well, it does, okay? Just, just believe it. No, the author of Hebrews is doing some really good exegesis at this point. He is treating the Old Testament well. He is understanding it correctly. In Isaiah chapter 8, starting in verse 15, we have very clear references to the Messiah. In fact, Isaiah says this. He says, but the Lord of hosts, this is verse 15, him you shall honor as holy. Let him be your fear. Let him be your dread. And he will become a sanctuary and a stone of offense and a rock of stumbling to both houses of Israel, and a snare to the inhabitants of Jerusalem. And a trap to the snare to the inhabitants of Jerusalem, and, shall, and many shall stumble on it, and they shall fall and be broken, and they shall be snared and taken. That verse is picked, in, picked up by New Testament authors to refer specifically to, to the Messiah, specifically to Jesus. He's going to become a stone of stumbling and a rock of, of offense. Some are going to be attracted to Jesus. Some are going to be offended by Jesus. That is what he's going to create this division. And uh, uh, Paul in Romans 9.33 blends this verse with Psalm 18, 118 and Isaiah 26. 16, to say this, quote, Behold, I am laying as Zion a stone of stumbling and a rock of offense, and whoever believes in him shall not be put to shame. And so this is a clear reference to Jesus. And he's taking this passage from Isaiah, and he's blending it with other passages, and he is saying this is what the Messiah will do. He will be a stone of stumbling and a rock of offense, but whoever believes in him will not be put to shame. So that when you come to verses 17 and 18 in Isaiah... You have to understand it within the context of talking about the Messiah. You can't detach it from that context. In Isaiah chapter 8 verse 18, it's Isaiah who says, Behold, I and the children that God has given me. And you might be thinking, well, how can that apply to Jesus? Because we have already seen in the context that we have reference to the Messiah. So that when you come to this passage, it's similar to what David was doing in Psalm 22. He's speaking the words of the Messiah before the Messiah is born. The words of the Messiah are in the mouths of Isaiah. It's in the mouths of, of David. And just like Isaiah, the Messiah and his children do become a sign. Let me turn over to Isaiah just briefly because this is 
remarkable. Isaiah chapter 8, you have to read the rest of the, the passage. It says uh, in chapter 8, verses 17 and following, it says, I will wait for the Lord who is the hiding, who's hiding his face from the house of Jacob, and I will put my hope in him, or I'll put my trust in him. Behold, I and the children whom the Lord has given me, okay, and that's what author of Hebrews quotes, are signs and portents in Israel from the Lord of hosts who dwells on Mount Zion. This is interesting because Isaiah and his children would become signs to Israel that God was saving a remnant and judging the rest of Israel. Jesus and the children that God has given him are also a sign to Israel that he is saving a remnant but presently judging Israel. And this is the case. And the author of uh, authors of the New Testament follow this. Israel is presently being hardened. And the church is actually a witness to that hardening. Most of the church is comprised of Gentiles, not Jews. There are some Jews being saved, praise God. But not a lot. Why? Because presently Israel is being hardened. So in this way, again, the author of Hebrews is not wrong to apply this to Jesus. Jesus' children are, like Isaiah's children, a sign and portent to Israel. A sign to Israel that God is saving a remnant, but judging Israel. The same can be said about Jesus and his children, the church. So the reason I do all that, and we probably could have even been a little more detailed. The reason I do all that is because I want you to be confident that the New Testament authors are using the Old Testament in the right way. Well, let's close by doing this. Let's sum up everything that we've seen in these last two chapters with regard to Jesus' superiority. He is God's supreme revelation. That's chapter 1, verses 1 and 2. He is the legal recipient of the entire universe. That's chapter 1, verse 2. He is the co-creator with God the Father, He is equal to God in his very essence. He oversees and sustains the universe. He has provided full atonement for sin. He is complete divine authority. He is God's king. The angels worship him because he is the eternal creator. That's all chapter 1. And then in chapter 2, we see that Jesus is superior to the angels because he is man. He has tasted death for God's people. He is the perfect savior, and he has true brotherhood with his people. So I hope you walk out of here today convinced that Jesus is superior to the angels. Amen? This is your Savior. This is Jesus Christ. There's no one like him. God said in Isaiah, to whom will you compare me? There's no God in any religion who holds a candle to Jesus Christ. No God. He is a Savior who fits your need perfectly. You are unrighteous. He is perfectly righteous, and he gives you his righteousness as a gift. You are guilty, he is perfect and paid your penalty of all of your sins on the cross, so you stand guiltless before God. Are you sinful? He is your sanctification, he gives his spirit to change you. Are you spiritually dead? He will make you alive with him. Are you poor and needy? He gives you an infinite inheritance that you will someday receive if you repent today and trust in Jesus Christ for the forgiveness of your sins. He is the perfect Savior. It's not cliche. Jesus Christ is all you need in life and in death. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, we thank you for this incredible passage, a lot of deep stuff that we had to talk about. I pray that it would bless your people, that we would take the truth home that you, Lord Jesus, are superior to the angels. There is none like you. No God holds a candle to the Lord Jesus Christ, the triune God 
of the universe, Father, Son, and Holy Spirit, the Son of God, equal to the Father, perfect in His humanity, dying on the cross, rising again so that we might be forgiven of our sins completely at the moment of faith. No faith is like Christianity. No God is like the God of the Bible. And it's because Jesus Christ is perfect in His deity and perfect in His manhood. We thank you for this wonderful text in Hebrews. In Jesus' name, amen. Thank you for listening. For more information about Creekside Bible Church, please visit our website at creeksidebiblechurch.com.